Thank you, Kim. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we have been taking a trip back to the beginning as we go to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and we've been starting with Genesis chapter 1. We read the story of how God created each one of us, both male and female, in His very image. And after He created everything, He looked upon us, the, the crown of creation and everything else He made, and He said, it is very, very good. Yes, in fact, we were given this great charge to have dominion over the rest of God's creation so that we might be His stewards of God's stuff. Unfortunately, as we continue to read Genesis, we can see that we have not always been good stewards of God's stuff or His creation. For in Genesis chapter 3, we read the story of the original sin of our first parents and how their sin helped corrupt all of creation. In fact, we read that Adam's sin not only led to them having to be cast out of the garden, but ultimately Adam's sin led to the cursing of the ground, that he would have to toil the ground and it would only produce thorns and thistles for him as he, he toiled for that uh, to, to, to help make things grow. Yes, we can see that beginning with our first parents, that original sin, we have now inherited a, a sinful nature that left our own is prone to wander from God. We are prone to, to stray from God. We, we call that the, the doctrine of total depravity in the Presbyterian church. There is no part of the human nature that hasn't somehow been impacted by sin. Our, our wills, our thoughts, our minds, our heart, all have been impacted by sin. And we saw a total depravity in full effect in Genesis chapter 4 as we read the story of how Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, killed his younger brother Abel because he was jealous of him. And as we saw last week in the story of the great flood, humanity's sin continued to digress. It continued to get worse and worse. For we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 to 6 these words, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Our sin grieves God. It makes him sad. You know, I used to think that God's sin made God mad because when I was a boy growing up in Midland, you know, when I would sin, it would make my parents mad, right? So I just assumed that if my, my sin makes my parents mad, that it must make God mad. But actually, our sin grieves God. It makes him sad because God loves us. And God wants what's best for us. And he gives us his commandments, not as restrictive rules, but rather laws by which we might live by so that we might have the best life that he's created for us. For as we look at the Ten Commandments, we can see very clearly that those are are good laws. They are for our good. It's not good for us to to covet. It's not good for our souls to to worship idols or to dishonor the Sabbath or to misuse the Lord's name in vain or to to murder or to steal or 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 to... or to lie and bear false witness. No, all of these commandments are actually for our good. But unfortunately, humanity continues to stray, continues to fall. But as we saw last week, there was one man, the first man to be described as righteous in the Bible. It's Noah. Noah found favor in God's eyes because Noah was a man of great faith. And in this faith, we read that Noah walked with God. And Noah did whatever God told him to do, which at times was very very difficult. If you remember last week, God told Noah to, to build an ark. And that Hebrew word for ark actually could also be translated as a, as a casket or a coffin. Can you imagine the confusion ar- Noah had when God told him he was going to destroy everything and start all over with him, and he needed to build an ark, a coffin, you know, a casket. Noah's like, what? Of course, this proves to be a, a huge boat, a very, very, very large boat. It was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It was huge, and it was so big so that it could carry not only Noah and his family, 
but also two of every form of animal, both male and female, of every kind of animal. And so Noah builds this huge ark following God's command, and he begins to board the boat, and he gets every kind of animal, every kind of male and female, every animal in creation, except for the unicorn, I'm told. Got a little illustration I show you. Oh, shoot, that was today. The unicorn forgot. You got to write stuff down, right, or you'll forget. That was today. That's why we have no more unicorns. Sorry about that. But uh, all of humanity was put on, or uh, all of creation was put on this boat. Some representative of all of creation was put on this boat because, well, the ark is God's big do-over. He wants to start over with Noah. Humanity had fallen so far astray. He said, I'm going to do start all over. And so it rains, and it rains, and it rains. 40 days and 40 nights it rains, flooding the entire earth, killing everything that had life, uh, the breath of life in it on the ground. Only those in the boat, in the ark, survived. And finally, after 150 plus days, the, the waters finally recede, and God uh, tells Noah, he commands Noah and his sons. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we read this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Doesn't that sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We actually read something very similar in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it's the first command that God gives to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Yes, God's vision for humanity is that we would be fruitful and and multiply and and fill the earth, not just stay in one holy huddle in one part of creation, but no, we're called to be stewards of all creations, to to shepherd all of creation. And so we're called to multiply and and fill the earth. Unfortunately, as we continue our journey through Genesis, we're going to see this morning that well, when humanity got together and brainstormed about what was best for them, they chose something different. They had a different plan, a plan that proves to be quite small, ultimately disobedient, and selfish in its origin. To see what that plan was, and so that we might see what God would have us do, that we might learn from their mistakes, that we might live into the vision God has for you and me and for all of our church together, please turn in your Bibles or your iPhones or whatever you use to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. Again, I apologize, we don't have pew Bibles. Those are kind of hard to sanitize in between services. So we're going to ask you to bring your own Bible or your phone or whatever you use. But Genesis chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills our hearts and minds and guides us and leads us in all truth. I pray, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us now to help understand these words that you have inspired so that we might hear from you that our hearts might be opened and transformed by your Holy Word. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Genesis chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Just a quick pause. Uh, historians and biblical scholars tell us that Shinar is where ancient Babylon used to be or where present-day Iraq is. They have moved uh, further to the east uh, to Shinar, uh, to ancient Babylon, to current-day Iraq. And they said to one another, 
Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to again look at uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 6. In fact, it's the verse that's on the front of your bulletin this morning. It says, and the Lord said, when looking at humanity in the city of Babel, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. I want to clarify, this is only the beginning of what they will do in the way of sin. Because when God looks at what humanity is doing, the plans that they have made for themselves, he can see that, well, it's, it's selfish, it's disobedient, and ultimately the, the vision of humanity proves to be too, too small. Let's look again at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. When the people got together, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Humanity's vision and hope and desire is to make a great name for themselves because they are self-absorbed. They are focused on themselves. And, and we know that as we read the whole Bible, that is not God's intention for humanity. They would be focused on themselves. In fact, the reason I had Kim read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 is because it helps us see that in whatever we do, we are called to, to live and, and eat and, and, and live to the glory of God. Uh, Paul has been addressing an issue about food that's been sacrificed to idols and whether or not that's going to be okay to eat. And he goes, hey, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In fact, as Presbyterians, uh, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written during the Reformation. It was written to help teach what the Bible teaches as a whole. It was a, a teaching tool, the Shorter Catechism. It's a question and answer. And the opening question of the Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Or, or like Rick Warren in his best-selling book, Purpose Driven Life, likes to say, what is the purpose of life? Now, Rick Warren went to Fuller Seminary where Kim and I went, and he got to hang out with a lot of Presbyterians, so he learned the answer to the question, right? What is the purpose of life? What's the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man, the purpose of life is to, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. God's vision for us and our lives is that we bring glory and honor to him and enjoy him forever. In fact, we're going to find the greatest joy in this life as we focus on bringing glory and honor to our great creator. I love what... Um, John Piper in his best-selling book, Don't Waste Your Life. That's what, what, what a title for a book, Don't Waste Your Life. If you've ever listened to John Piper preach, he's kind of in-your-face type of preacher. I like to listen to him occasionally because it just shakes me to the core, but if I listen to him every week, I'll be depressed. So uh, don't waste your life. He wrote in this wonderful book, he writes this, God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. Does that describe us? 
Do we have a passion to bring glory and honor to God in all spheres of our life? Do we have a passion to bring glory and honor to God in our work, in our homes, in our social circles, in our schools, on vacation? Are we focused? Do we have a passion to bring glory and honor to God? You know, if we ever wane in our passion for bringing glory and honor to God, we just need to look here to the passion of Christ. For Jesus, who was without sin, became sin for us. As Deuteronomy says, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. Paul actually quotes that verse in his letter to the Galatians. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus, who lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, demonstrated the full extent of God's love for us that while he was sinless, he became one who bore the sins of the world with his sacrifice on a cross. As Jesus says in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends. It was God's great love for us that led him to send his son to, to live as the perfect example of what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to, what it means to love our neighbors, ourselves, and then to die as the perfect sacrifice on a cross so that we might have a reconciled relationship with God. So, so the div dividing wall that used to exist between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man might be torn asunder and taken apart, that we might have a relationship with God. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they're very careful to point out that when Jesus was crucified, the veil that helped separate the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple. And now the veil, this holiest of holies, was the place where God was believed to reside in the temple in uh, Jerusalem. And only the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, could walk into the holiest of holies to present a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. But the rest of the time, there was this veil that separated the holiest of holies to separate this holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Well, in Luke and in Matthew, we read that that veil was torn from top to bottom. And the fact that it was torn from top to bottom highlights that it was God who tore the veil. If it had been torn from bottom to top, man could have done that, but only God could tear the veil. That when Christ was crucified, that veil was torn apart from top to bottom so that we might have a full access to our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus proved to be victorious over both sin and death on our behalf when he rose again on the third day, proving to be who he said he was, the great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the Savior of the world. Yes, Christ's resurrection helps us know that death won't have the final say for us, for his crucifixion leads to our salvation. And that salvation should give us a passion to bring glory and honor to God. Unfortunately, people in Babel, they're selfish. They don't have a passion to bring glory and honor to God. No, they're, they're focused on themselves. They're focused on what their own wants and their own needs. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Yes, this vision that humanity has proves to be selfish and ultimately it proves to be disobedient because they do the exact opposite of what God had told them to do. As you read in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 1 just a moment ago, you know, when the waters finally recede, God tells Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, saying what he did to his, our first parents, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's vision is not for us to stay in a holy huddle only with people who look like us and think like us and believe like us. No, God's vision is that we would go out and spread the good news of his love, that we would be a steward 
of all creation, not staying in a holy huddle, but the people in Babel, they're afraid. So they just want to stay together in their holy huddle. How often can we be like that? You know, as we grow in our faith in Christ, we tend to spend more and more time in the church. You know, we come into the church for worship, and I'm so glad you're here. That is the appropriate response to God's love. We come for worship. We, we get into Bible studies. You know, we spend more and more time with, with just Christians, really studying God's word, growing in fellowship. with These are all good things to grow in the knowledge of God's love. But God's vision for us is much greater than that. God's vision for us is not to stay in a holy huddle. No, God's vision for us is to go out and, and to make disciples. In fact, Jesus, we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, the final words of the resurrected Jesus before he ascends to heaven, he gets his disciples together and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that Jesus says, go. He doesn't say stay. He doesn't say stay in Jerusalem and huddle together and make sure no outsiders ever come in because it's just you and me. We're just going to be together and we're going to be a holy huddle, pure, sanctified, and never corrupted by the sins of the world. No, he says go and make disciples of all nations because I've got good news for the whole world and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. You know, when I was a consultant uh, in Dallas many years ago, it's getting more and more years as I think about it, uh, I, I worked with mostly non-Christians. I worked for Pricewaterhouse uh, Coopers there in Dallas, and most of my coworkers were non-Christians, or they were, I would say, nominal Christians uh, who grew up in the church, but since college they had quit going and they hadn't yet to return. And uh, I really enjoyed that time with some of those guys because we would go to lunch uh, every Monday. And on Mondays, we would talk about, what would you do this last weekend? And, and of course, what I would do is try to encourage them to share. And so I would ask them lots of questions and follow-up questions about their weekend. And then eventually, they would ask me about my weekend. Now, critical to these lunches is I would actually pray before the lunch that God might open a door for me to somehow share a little bit about my faith, help point them to Jesus. And so they'd ask me about my weekend. Well, I was real involved in the singles ministry at Highland Park Presbyterian Church. In fact, that's where I I met my lovely wife, Sarah. And uh, we would volunteer a lot uh, helping serve in West Dallas uh, through Mercy Streets Ministries or Habitat for Humanity. And so I'd get to share some of that. Or when a friend would go on vacation, we'd ask them about their vacation. And when I would go on vacation, I'd come back from my vacation. And most of my vacations as a single person would be mission trips. And so I would tell them about how we went to Cuba and we did door-to-door evangelism, handing out Bibles to people who didn't have Bibles. Or how we would go to Merida, Mexico and we'd help build a school for for, uh, uh, kids there in Mexico. Or or how we went to um, Mendenhall, Mississippi and we helped lay sewage lines for a youth center uh, for a church there in Mississippi. And as I would share about that, you know, they'd begin to ask me about my faith and I'd get to tell them how Jesus has changed my life. Now today as a pastor, I've got to admit, I hang out mostly with you guys, you know, and I love you all, but I've got to make sure that, to make that extended effort to meet non-Christians, to spend time with non-believers, unchurched people. And I've actually found the best way to do that is through my kids' sports. Uh, As my kids do sports, I get to know other parents. And again, in these conversations, the first thing I would encourage you to do, and I try to do as well, is I pray before the conversation even takes place. I pray that the Holy Spirit might guide that conversation in some way that I might be able to help point them to Jesus and the things that I say. And I also always begin by getting to know them and trying to hear their story and what their interests are. And as I'm listening to their story, I'm seeing if there might be an avenue for me to share a little bit about 
my story and, and who God is. And usually, you know, the way conversation works, if you ask someone about their story, they're going to ask you about you. And as you can tell them about you, you can tell them about, well, the one you follow, the one you love, the one who died for you. Now, I know sometimes we can get anxious about sharing our faith. In fact, the people of Babel were quite anxious. That's why they wanted to huddle together. They didn't want to go out. They wanted to stay together in one holy huddle. But when we feel anxious and fearful about sharing our faith, because we don't want to sound preachy or we don't want to seem pushy, we need to pray. Because God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And if for any reason we're feeling anxious about sharing our faith, I promise you that's the devil, that's the evil one, because he doesn't want you to talk about Jesus. But I know God wants us to talk about his son, Jesus, who loves the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This as we look at the story of the Tower of Babel, we can see that well, their vision that they had for themselves was, it was selfish. It was focused on making a great name for themselves. It was truly disobedient because they wanted to stay in a holy huddle where God had clearly told them to go out. And ultimately, this vision, this vision of, of humanity proves to be too, too, too small. Just think about it for a moment. All of humanity can speak the same language. And so they get their heads together and have this huge brainstorming session saying, hey, what could we do? Hey, let's build a tower and, and build a great city. We'll make a great name for ourselves and we'll be safe, secure in this holy huddle. Isn't that a great idea? How silly it must look, especially for those of us who've read the rest of the Bible. In fact, if you go to the very next chapter of the Bible, we can see that God's vision for humanity is so much, so much larger. For in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God looks down on his creation. And he finds a man named Abraham 75 years old, married to a woman named Sarah, who's 65 years old, and barren. And he sees this man, he says, if you will follow me, if you will go to the land I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. Man has a vision of making a great city. God has a vision of making a great nation. And not just any nation. Now we read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has a vision to bless every family on the earth through his covenant people, Abraham, and as we know, as the story goes, if you read the very first chapter of Matthew, a descendant of Abraham is Jesus, who came to save the world. Yes, God's vision for our life is so much larger than we could ever imagine. God's vision for our life is that he might use us to help change the world. I remember about, uh, and it was about nine years ago now, eight or nine years ago, uh, Kent Buchanan and his wife Josie were kind of checking out our church, and so they invited us to lunch after church one time, my family and me, and we, we got to know them better, and I started sharing with him the vision that our church has, because we want to be a missional church, and a missional church is a church that's a sending church. We're sending people out to be a light of Christ's love, because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give praises to your Father who's in heaven. And so as a part of that idea of being a missional church, we've made the commitment as a church 
that we're going to give 12% of our operating budget to local and global missions. In fact, finance just voted on next year's budget and uh, that's the same vision, 12% to local and global missions, which allows us to sponsor missionaries all over the world in places like Iraq, in places like Ireland, in Bolivia, in Spain. And if you're not sure of who all our missionaries are, after this service, go to the Great Hall, see that huge world map, see all the names of the missionaries and the different ministries we sponsor. Well, I shared this vision with Kent and told him that our vision is to be a missional church. We want to sponsor as many missionaries as possible. Kent said this to me. He said, man, God's going to use First Presbyterian Church to change the world. I said, you're right, Kent. God wants to use our church to change the world. It starts in Amarillo. It moves to the state of Texas, to the United States, and around the globe as we use the resources that God has given us to help sponsor missionaries around the globe who can make disciples, who can be salt and light where they are, and where we try to live in such a way that others see our good deeds and give praises to our Father in heaven. Yes, God's vision for us is that he would use us to change the world as we focus our lives around bringing glory and honor to him as you seek to fulfill and go out and make disciples of all nations as he's called us to do so that lives might be changed for eternity. What is God's vision for your life and mine and this church is that he would use us to change the world. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you invite us to be world changers. God, you have a vision for us that is beyond anything we could ever imagine As we look at the Great Commission, it's very clear to us that you've called us to go, to go out and make disciples so that as we leave this building today, Lord, help us to have that at the center of our hearts and minds. Help us to be open to those godly moments where we can share the good news of your love with others. Help us to be prayerful in every conversation to see ways that we might point others to faith, to point others to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to do all that we can to bring glory and honor to you so that our lives might reflect your great love. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.